1: Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age Podcast. hello
0: there welcome to the first episode of hbo's the official gilded age podcast your companion to the new hbo original series the gilded age i'm alicia malone and you may have heard my little australian voice if you've watched turner classic movies where i'm one of the hosts who introduces the classic films and places them within historical context to be honest my expertise lies more in the golden age of hollywood rather than the gilded age of new york but I adore period dramas and I've been studying up and I'm so curious to learn more about this era which is where my co-host Tom comes in. Hi Tom.
2: Hello Alicia and hello listeners. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast which digs into the history of New York City. I am so excited to join you on the podcast and to be a kind of historical tour guide throughout the period. We're definitely going to have fun with this because the Gilded Age TV series visits so many real places and features so many characters who really existed. After each episode, you and I will be discussing the real and fictional history that is weaved through the story. And then we'll also be joined by the members of the cast and the crew who will tell us all about the making of the show. And Alicia, should we reveal who we have on today? because it's big. Oh
0: Yeah, we are certainly starting with a bang. I feel just like Mrs. Astor at one of her balls because <laughs> later in this episode, we'll be joined by television's high society in the form of the creator of the Gilded Age, Lord Julian Fellows, and the star Christine Berinsky, who plays the intimidating Agnes Van Ryan.
2: Unbelievable. But wait, my tux is at the cleaners.
0: Don't worry, Tom, this is a podcast, so nobody's going to see you.
2: Well, today we're discussing Season 1, Episode 1 of The Gilded Age, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. And we're going to focus right now on the social hierarchy that existed in New York in the 1880s.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of ground to cover today because, Tom, this first episode of the series introduces us to many of the show's principal characters, and we get a sense of where they fit in into this world.
2: Yeah, we've got multiple families with their multiple staffs and there's all kinds of drama right from the start.
0: So much drama. But before we dig into that, let's just back up for a moment and set the scene because this series opens with sheep in Central Park and a title (laughs) card showing that this is New York in 1882. So when was this in terms of the Gilded Age?
2: Uh, Right smack in the middle of it. The period that we call the Gilded Age started in the years following the Civil War in the late 1860s uh, and was really in its prime in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s.
0: So when did it end?
2: Around the turn of the century, it would be followed by the Progressive Era, although some historians push the end date all the way back to World War I.
0: So that means here in 1882, it is prime Gilded Age, Although, did they call it the Gilded Age at the time?
2: No, the term Gilded Age actually comes from a novel that was written in 1873 by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner called The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. It's a satire about greed and corruption. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I think I think we're in probably for some greed and corruption in this show. Yeah.
0: Well, what I find interesting is that term gilded age because it, it sounds glamorous, but it wasn't meant to be complimentary from what I understand Twain was was actually criticizing this time period.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's not the golden age, but the gilded age, which is It's a cheaper version, right? Gilding is just a thin layer of gold that's painted over another material to make it appear like it's gold. And we see a lot of that inside those townhouses and mansions that we'll be visiting on the show.
0: Yeah, Mrs. Russell's ballroom. But there is something shallow (laughs) about it, isn't there? It gilding. It's kind of, it's fake. It's a veneer that's
2: hiding the truth. Exactly. And decades later in the 20th century, with some perspective, the term would then be begin to be applied to this entire period.
0: Well, that makes sense. It does really seem to fit this time period.
2: Yeah, because these decades were undoubtedly filled with gold. I mean, we're talking about previously unheard of wealth and, and huge fortunes made in a variety of industries. But these fortunes were held by a tiny minority of Americans.
0: Right. It wasn't exactly a, a golden age for
2: everybody. No, most didn't consider it golden at all. There was a lot of unrest during this period. There were terrible working conditions, uh, worker strikes. Sometimes these were brutally repressed. And there were also two financial depressions during the Gilded Age, in the 1870s and 1890s.
0: And another social dynamic we see at play amongst the wealthy is the battle between... Old New York, as the character of Agnes Van Ryn calls it, versus New New York. It's really old money versus new money.
2: And sometimes, yes, sitting uncomfortably close to each other. In this opening scene of the show, we see two butlers from two splendid homes, right, nod at each other. There's the English-born butler, Bannister, at the Van Ryn's townhouse, sort of forcing a smile across 61st Street to church, the American-born butler for the Russell family, who is at the time supervising the the moving in of boxes into the family's palatial new mansion.
0: Old money, the Van Rines, watching new money, the Russells moving into their neighbourhood and, as you say, into a much more lavish home. And this really is the central tension in this episode, and not just about the extravagantness of their home, but also what that home represents.
2: Oh, exactly. Yeah. For the Van Ryns and for old New York society, the Russells were arrivists, right? They were nouveau riche. They were not part of New York society, often referred to as Knickerbocker society. These were families who could, you know, trace their origins back generations to the earliest days of New York. By the way, bonus points if your family dated back before the city was even called New York, back when it was still Dutch-controlled and called New Amsterdam in the 17th century.
0: Like the fictional Van Ryns.
2: Exactly. Van Ryns. And the Van Rensselaers and the De Peisters and the Skirmerhorns, And also families from New York's British and early American period, like the Livingstons and the Morrises. So
0: would you say this this old New York was kind of like American royalty?
2: Yeah, you could say that. Royalty in a nation where the aristocracy and royalty didn't formally exist. Society was the closest thing that we had.
0: So that's the top of society. But let's go back down into the real world. Because (laughs) in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, we're introduced to the lovely Marion Brooke. And she's meeting with her dashing lawyer, Tom Rakes, After her father has died. So how much is left? I've paid
3: the funeral charges and other outstanding accounts, and I will waive my own fee. There's no need. There is every need. You will have in your possession somewhere in the region of $30.
0: You see, Mr. Rakes, none of this is what my father told me.
2: Bad news. Alicia, what are your first thoughts about Marion and, and how she fits in here?
0: Oh, I, I like Marion. I think she's really the heart of the show. And through her, we really get a sense of how helpless women were at this time. They needed a family fortune or a husband. It was so difficult for women to be independent. But mm-hmm. I also like how determined Marion is. I mean, as she says, I am not beaten yet.
2: No, she's not. Um- And I I feel like we're going to be seeing the Gilded Age Society through her eyes, through her innocence. She's kind of like our guide. And she is about to jump right into the heart of it.
0: Right, because Marion then has no choice but to go and live with her two aunts, Agnes Van Rhine and Ada Brooke in New York, whom we mentioned earlier. Agnes is a wealthy widow, and Ada is her spinster sister who never married, shock horror. And Agnes, because she married <laughs> into the Van Rhine family, she is part of that old New
2: York society. She is, yes. Although I should mention that she was also before marrying as well, when she was just a brook, you know, like Ada, uh, her sister, and Marion, her niece. Agnes, in fact, reminds Marion, quote, your grandmother was a Livingston. You belong to old New York. So really, all three of them then are safely considered part of old New York society.
0: Right, and they live in that luxurious brownstone. I googled this and I saw that the brownstones were popular from about the 1840s.
2: Yeah, and still, of course, around today. Um, But the townhouse itself was also luxurious inside. Perhaps it appeared austere, even kind of plain from the street, but these were lavish inside.
0: Well, the Russell's house across the street is quite a contrast because it's in a new flashy style to go with their new money. And both are situated on East 61st Street and Fifth Avenue, which we hear mm-hmm. is quite uptown, but not as uptown as it used to be.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of um, uptown downtown talk going on the show, which I love. I totally geeked out to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and that's because the city's population during the Gilded Age was dramatically increasing, right? And, and because Manhattan is an island and skyscrapers wouldn't be possible for decades, there was really only one direction for the city to grow. That was north. So anybody who could move uptown or north did.
0: But were there some that stayed downtown?
2: Absolutely, especially many of the newly arrived immigrants um, who could really only, in most cases, afford a a cheap boarding house or a tenement apartment in neighborhoods like the Lower East Side. But during this time, there was also new ways to get around the city. There were new horse-drawn railways, there were new elevated trains, which meant that for the first time, New Yorkers could now live uptown and work downtown,
0: and not spend hours commuting between both of those places. So that means the the rich were moving uptown.
2: Yes, although I should add that they certainly weren't taking the street railways. (laughs) No. Um, they, They had their own carriages and their own drivers, as we have seen already in several scenes here in the first episode. Characters being driven to work.
0: Well, I love when the Van Rines leave the safety of their townhouse just to take a spin through Central Park.
2: Yes, going for a carriage ride in Central Park to get some fresh air. Lovely. Those were the days. <laughs> but the aristocratic neighborhoods had been actually moving up the island for decades by this point. You know, they they had moved from lower Manhattan up to Washington Square Park in the 1830s, and then they started creeping up Fifth Avenue. In the 1860s, Caroline Astor, who you mentioned, and her husband, William Backhouse Astor, built a brownstone at 355th Avenue, which is at 34th Street, uh, just next to his brother.
0: Which I'm guessing was John.
2: (laughs) Yes, John Jacob Astor III. (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) Um, And the brothers didn't get along, but that's an entirely different story.
0: Okay, so that's the 1860s, but what about Mm -hmm. the 1880s when the the show is set?
2: Well, in 1883, uh, the Vanderbilts, William Kissam Vanderbilt and his wife Alva, built a stunning Beaux-Arts Chateau, really a palatial mansion at 52nd and Fifth Avenue. And society would kind of follow them up to this stretch and then creep further north up Fifth Avenue, which for any listener who's not familiar with New York, starts to border Central Park at 59th Street.
0: And, Tom, I was reading The Gilded Age in New York by Esther Crane, which was one of the books you suggested to me. Mm -hmm. And she writes how this stretch of Fifth Avenue had the nickname Millionaire's Row. I also like this quote by James McCabe, who wrote in 1882, to live and die in a Fifth Avenue mansion is the dearest wish of every New Yorker's heart. So I guess that explains why we hear the Russells talk about their old house on 30th Street as being in an unfashionable location. Bertha Russell says to her husband, George, we were stuck down on 30th Street with yesterday's men.
2: Yeah, and, and we also hear from Monsieur Baudin, the chef, that they had been living in a, quote, rented house. Oh, so for a, for a social climber like Bertha Russell, she couldn't be anywhere near yesterday's men or in yesterday's neighborhood and certainly not in a rented house
0: definitely not. And back in Doylestown, just as Marion is leaving, there is some sort of scuffle on the train platform. She ends up losing her tickets and her purse, and she accidentally rips the dress of Peggy Scott, who's a young African-American woman waiting for a train. Peggy does a good turn, and she pays for Marion's ticket, and they journey together into the city. But Tom, we have to remember that at this time, it was an uncommon sight to see a white woman and a black woman traveling together.
2: Indeed it was, yeah, and really there is a lot happening in this scene. What else, I'm curious, what else stood out for you?
0: Well, I mean, this was post-Civil War, so slavery had been abolished. But as we see, Black people were still treated like second-class citizens. I mean, especially on these trains, as Peggy says, we have to board last. There was segregation Mm -hmm. on the railroads with white-only train cars and a definite lack of comfort in the Black section. But it seems like Marion is a more progressive woman of these times. You know, she's grateful for Peggy's help and helps her in return and, and arranges for Peggy to spend the night at the Van Ryn house.
2: Yes, Aunt Agnes agrees to let Peggy stay because also there's been a storm and there are no ferries running to Brooklyn. Remember that the East River Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, wouldn't be open until the next year, 1883. Mm. But Peggy finds that she's not entirely welcomed in the house.
0: Yeah, we hear the Van Ryn staff debate downstairs about Peggy sleeping alongside them. Mr Bannister, the butler, says it's not for them to have an opinion, particularly not that opinion, and suggests that maybe they could do with a bit of disruption. But Bridget in particular is concerned about her job and, Tom, she's an Irish immigrant, perhaps one of the many Irish refugees who fled the potato famine for New York, and the Irish were also treated like lower-class citizens.
2: Yeah, they were. And as is often the case, and still the case today, usually the most recent arrivals found themselves immediately at the bottom of the ladder, right? There were decades, many decades of tension between the Irish arrivals and native born New Yorkers, nativist New Yorkers, disputes over territory, over jobs. And this led to years of like street gang warfare, violence, especially downtown around the Five Points neighborhood, which has been depicted in movies like The Gangs of New York.
0: Yeah, I've seen that film, and and they were also competing with Black New Yorkers, the Irish, for some of these lower-paid jobs.
2: Here in the show in 1882, then you see apprehension, right, on Peggy's part, and also animosity from some of the staff and a fear that perhaps they meaning Black New Yorkers, were also going to take their jobs.
0: But Agnes is impressed with Peggy's penmanship. And Peggy mentions that she attended the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia. And this was a real place, the first high school for African-American youth in America.
2: Yes, and with the training that she'd received there, she was able then to land a job as Agnes's personal secretary. But also, even with those credentials, did you notice that as soon as Peggy is admitted into the Van Ryn house for the evening, it's just immediately understood that she goes downstairs to eat with the staff Mm -hmm. and that she sleeps upstairs, you know, in the servant's quarters. So Agnes is open to having a black woman stay with them, but she's not that open, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Speaking of kitchen staff, however, we also drop in across the street on the Russell's Busy Kitchen— did you notice any big differences between these two kitchens and these two staffs?
0: Well, mainly that there was a big size difference. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the numbers yeah. of staff at the Russell residence definitely outnumber the small group at the Van Ryns.
2: Yeah, and also that the Russells were so fancy, right, that they've even hired a real French chef, Monsieur Bodem, which was an unheard of extravagance at the time.
0: Well also in this episode we start to get an idea of how important charity was to the women of the Gilded Age. It's a permissible way for women to work, as Agnes suggests to Marion, but also it presented a sort of a back door for women like Mrs. Russell to get in to the social set, although she wasn't so warmly received by Aurora Fane
3: tell aunt agnes they were here she'd be livid with me she'll find out i feel rather sorry for the girl i like them that's not the point what is the point let's face it aunt ada we need money and you know how much those women give when they want to get in there's a price for that award, and
0: it's no good thinking you won't have to pay it so tom these wealthy women were doing some good for the underprivileged but it wasn't entirely altruistic.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, to be sure, many charities did quite a bit of good at the time, and and many were operated by religious organizations, you know, like the Five Points House of Industry in the 1850s and the New York City Rescue Mission and the Bowery Mission in the 1870s. But here we see society women who were also raising funds for good causes, which actually happened. And in the show here, we see that they are planning a bazaar to raise money for a charity that helps, and I quote, train young orphans to be servants. <laughs> so yeah, even if it's a good cause, they've really got to work on that wording.
0: <laughs> they sure do. But they need donations, which brings us again to George and Bertha Russell.
2: New money personified. Alicia, how do we feel about the Russells?
0: Well, I think they're both very ambitious, obviously, George mm-hmm. with the railroad and and Bertha wanting to break into society. I like that they both seem to want to push New York into the future, but they have an undercurrent of ruthlessness about them. Like, you would not want to cross them. Although, Tom, I still would have loved to visit their
2: house. Oh, totally. Yeah. I I smiled actually when I saw Bertha walking through the mansion for the first time, you know, being yes. led by Stanford White as chandeliers were being cleaned and statues were being carted in. I just, I love a big buzzing number like that. <laughs> um, and I also, I guess I also felt that finally somebody seemed to be really having fun, right? I mm-hmm. mean, what's more fun than moving into a new palace? Especially a palace that's, you know, been furnished with pieces, you know, that were snatched from other palaces, like in Paris and Rome.
0: Oh my gosh, how about George putting his legs on the desk that used to belong to King Ludwig of Bavaria?
2: (laughs) And this definitely happened. I mean, I don't know specifically about King Ludwig's desk, but European aristocracy did sell off their furniture and their paintings and tapestries and so on to American millionaires during the Gilded Age. I mean, there was a whole industry that grew up around importing these items.
0: Another location we see in this first episode is Newport, Rhode Island, where Larry Russell meets Oscar Van Rijn and Carrie Astor. And Newport was where many wealthy New York families had summer cottages, but that's cottages in quotation marks because these houses were still very grand. And we'll be getting more into that in later podcast episodes. But here is Larry Russell and Carrie Astor talking about her mother's new home in Newport. And Oscar couldn't help but add his two cents.
3: Do you often come to Newport, Miss Astor? I will.
1: My parents bought a house here last year, Beechwood. We've nearly finished the renovations, so I suppose I'll be here a lot.
3: Was there much to do to the place?
1: Well, obviously, my mother couldn't live in a house without a
3: ballroom.
2: (laughs) You may laugh, but as my mother never tires of pointing out, our future success in New York depends entirely on the support and approval of Mrs. Astor.
0: Mm.
3: I'm afraid it's true. She is quite a force.
0: force for good, I hope. Well,
3: a force to be reckoned with. (laughs)
0: A force to be reckoned with. You know, before I started doing this research, I had heard the name Mrs. Astor mentioned in multiple places, but particularly in classic films. Just the other night I was watching The Mad Miss Manton, which is a 1930s screwball comedy, and one character notices a blue blotch on the floor and says maybe it's the bloodstain of Mrs. Astor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, Tom, how do you begin to even sum up the the power that Mrs. Astor wielded on society at this time?
2: Uh, well, I mean, she simply ruled over the social scene. She controlled who was in and who was out. You know, really, society here in the 1880s, they'd hit a critical point because... New York's old established families found themselves brushing up more and more often against newly rich families who were moving, relocating to New York. Why did they choose New York? Uh, Because New York had become the economic capital of the country and also manufacturing and publishing capital. And all of these new rich families just bewildered old society. So Mrs. Astor then could kind of offer some guidance. She could offer insight into who was accepted into society and who wasn't.
0: And not only do we get to see Mrs. Astor, we also see several members of the old society, like Anne Morris and Aurora Fane, along with aunts Agnes and Ada, and they're all fretting about the consequences of befriending someone like Bertha Russell.
2: Yeah, oh, and they're all constantly reprimanding Marion for naively suggesting that they should be welcoming to the Russells. Although, of course, their charities will accept her money.
0: Yeah, right, of course, they will take a check. Uh, another major player in New York social scene was Mamie Fish, who is the host of the party in Newport. And, Tom, from what I understand, she was known as the fun maker, like Mrs. Astor's parties could be long and drawn out, but Mrs. Fish's were fun and unique. I read about a birthday party that she threw for her dog where her dog <laughs> wore a $15,000 diamond dog collar. Mm. And also in this episode, we see her encouraging her guests to play croquet and then forcing them practically into playing a card game called Cinch.
2: Yeah. I mean, she seems to have really been enjoying herself and probably got a kick out of subjecting her highbrow guests to her rather eccentric situations. Mamie Fish was married to Stuyvesant Fish, who was a member of New York's long-respected Fish family. Alicia. But speaking of throwing a party, Bertha, Bertha Russell becomes determined to open her doors. And really the climax of the episode surrounds her attempts to host what she calls an at-home.
0: Yes, which Bertha says in the episode is a a less formal gathering. It's a chance for the curious to drop by and see her new home at a designated time. It's not dinner it's not dancing, it's not in the ballroom, it's more casual, of course, casual being a relative <laughs> term.
2: Right, and yes. one
0: of the guests who is invited to the event is Stanford White, and he's the architect who the Russells use for their house, and he was actually a, a real architect.
2: Oh, absolutely. By 1882, Stanford White was a partner at McKim, Mead & White, which would become the most respected architectural firm in the city. He favored a a neoclassical style, and he was also known for buying up European antiques and artifacts and antiquities and then working them into his new commissions, which we saw here in the show earlier as he walked through the new house with Bertha pointing out the various items. But now, by the end of the episode, everybody is definitely curious about this new mansion that he's designed, and Bertha hopes that, quote, all the right people will show up for her big soiree.
0: Sadly, they do not. And the downstairs staff worked hard on this party. They prepared tons of food. There was flowers and blocks of ice going into the house. But afterwards, Chef Baudin, Watson, Turner, Mrs. Bruce and Church uh, all have something to say about how it went.
1: Cooking for paupers, that's not what I'm used to. I dare say you're not used to making supper for guests who never turn up.
0: The evening was a folly.
3: This house is a folly. She's built a palace to entertain the sort of people who will never come here. Don't count her out so quickly.
1: I agree. She knows what she wants. Why shouldn't she try to get it? It's
3: nothing to me if she fails or succeeds.
1: Isn't it, Miss Turner? You seem to take it personally.
3: Failure's catchable, Mr. Church. It rubs off if you're not
1: careful. And what about Mr. Russell? Is he a failure, too?
2: So much kitchen drama playing out after after the party fizzles. And and by the way, seemingly dozens of lobsters have gone uneaten. Did you notice that? No, they look so good too. Well, they were donated to the poor. And even though Marion good naturedly snuck across the street to attend the party, you still can't help but feel sorry for Bertha, right? I mean, especially after we see Mrs. Astor fling her invitation right into the fire.
0: Yeah, that was cold. I mean, I was hoping it would go well so that Bertha could show these snooty society types that she is capable of throwing a party. Although, I don't know, Tom, I think she should have invited her old friends because she's kind of being just as snooty. She's ditched her old friends. Mm. Now she just wants to social climb with her new friends.
2: Yeah, I I think that the exchange between George and Stanford White actually sums it up pretty nicely. When George says... Whatever her faults, she has imagination and taste and nerve. Yes. Stanford responds, She will need all three in New York. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Alicia, in a moment, we'll talk more about the social hierarchy of Gilded Age New York as well as the making of the show. With two very special guests.
0: Yes, keep listening because joining us will be Lord Julian Fellows, the creator of the Gilded Age HBO original series, and the one and only Christine Berinsky, who plays Aunt Agnes. You're listening to the official Gilded Age podcast, and we will be right back.
3: Now, you need to know, we only receive the old people in this house. Not the new. Never the new. What's the difference? The old have been in charge since before the Revolution. They ruled, justly, until the new people invaded.
0: It's not quite as simple as that. Yes, it is. Well, I'm new. I've only just arrived.
3: Marion, never mind that the Brooks have been in Pennsylvania for a century and a half. My mother... Your grandmother was a Livingston of Livingston Manor, and they came to this city in 1674. You belong to old New York, my dear, and don't let anyone tell you different. You are my niece, and you belong to old New York.
2: <laughs> and don't you forget it, Marion. That was Agnes Van Ryn reminding her niece, Marion Brooke, about their family's fine pedigree. Welcome back to HBO's The Official Gilded Age podcast. I'm Tom Myers, along with my co-host, Alicia Malone, and we have the distinct pleasure of being joined right now by Lord Julian Fellows, the creator, writer, and producer of The Gilded Age, and Christine Baranski, who we just heard in the clip in the role of Agnes Van Ryn. Welcome to you
1: both. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to be here.
0: And Julian, this has been a really long road for you because the first mention in the press about this series was back in 2012. Now, 10 years later, it's out there in the world. What has that journey been like for you?
1: Yes, it's rather extraordinary, really. I mean, I began to feel we were sort of drinking to the king over the water or next year in Jerusalem or something, (laughs) Uh, because it just seemed to recede as fast as it could. But anyway, we made it. I mean, it has been a funny time because we made it during the whole COVID period, (laughs) presumably a distinct period of filming it will become. And I must say, I am very, very thrilled. I mean, I've lived with the subject and everything for a long time. And of course, I was interested in the subject before I started, because that's why I started, because I've got drawn to this particular period of American history. And my fascination with it actually has only grown. I mean, obviously, before I wrote it, I'd heard, for instance, of Newport on Rhode Island, the sort of play place of these people. Uh, but now I know it. You know, I've been to Newport. I've spent weeks there. And, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a fantastic place to be, and a wonderful sort of completeness in the town. So anyway, I mean, I, I'm a happy boy, really, that uh, <laughs> that it is now finally being shown to the public.
2: What an interesting point that you were producing this show about, you know, that has so much history in it during a historical period itself. I mean, you were living history and making history at the same time. Um, and what was it about the Gilded Age in particular that, that drew you to it as a subject and really, 1882, I'm curious why you came up with that year.
1: I always like periods of change. I mean, practically everything I've ever written is about a period of more, more than usual change. I mean, there's always change, but more than usual change. And what I like about the Gilded Age is it was a moment, in a way, I mean, I'm sure everyone will disagree with me, but it was a, a moment of America in a sense, coming of age itself. Before the Civil War, of course, there were rich people in America, and there were upper classes, you know, and all of that stuff, like there are everywhere. But in a sense, it was imitating Europe. And a lot of the social framework and things was borrowed from Europe and from the countries these people had come from. But after the Civil War, that really starts to change partly because these enormous fortunes are being generated in shipping, in railways above all, in coal, in copper, you name it. And they're coming to New York to spend them, or a lot of people are, but also because they don't do it in the old European way. They develop a new American way of being rich, of living a different kind of American life and having this these sort of Renaissance princes. But, but Re- reinvented, And I was fascinated by that. I was drawn into it originally because uh, I read a, a book, I think, about Alva Vanderbilt and her daughter Consuela, who became Duchess of Marlborough, one of the more famous of the dollar princesses, mm-hmm. uh, who came over to rescue European aristocratic families that were, by and large, down on their luck. And these lovely girls arrived with bags and bags of dollars and saved the families for really another hundred years. So that was rather fascinating. But the more I read of it, the more I read of these people, the more I got drawn into it. And it it seemed to me that these two cultures in the 1870s and 80s were in a sense, both occupying New York. I mean, one could probably have an argument as to which side won. But at that period, Mrs. Astor realized that somehow she had to blend these two worlds in order not to have two societies running side by side and out-competing each other. And particularly as one side had a great deal more money than the other. And she wanted to avoid that. So she created this kind of blended society of the new and the old people. And that in itself interested me. It sort of struck me as a uniquely American occurrence. And Mrs. Astor herself, I mean, I've searched and searched, and she wasn't a beauty, and I've never found a single funny thing she said or wrote. <laughs> but there was something about her must have been Mesmeric, because she was essentially Queen of New York for about 30 years. I mean, with 1882 and 83, I was interested by that time because it's starting to take shape, all of this. Newport is taking shape, Mrs. Astor moved to Newport for the summer in 1882. And New York itself was, say, the Great Brooklyn Bridge was about to open. In 83, mm-hmm. the Metropolitan Museum of Art had just opened. All of these peacetime things were happening in New York. Uh, and this extraordinary Gilded Age architecture was coming into its own. And, and the king of it, Stanford White, was just getting going with his practice. And I just felt, I mean, in the end, you know, you have to opt for one year rather than another. And I suppose what tipped it for me was that it was the year when Edison had his great display of electricity. Suddenly everyone realized that actually electricity was the future and that it was going to change the world. And I loved that. I loved the fact that all the New Yorkers of every class and background, you know, an enormous number of them gathered to see this phenomenon, to see the buildings lit up and all the rest of it. And that seemed to me to be a nice iconic moment of the new world arriving in the city. So I suppose that was what settled it, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say between myself and Tom, Tom's a history buff. I'm more of a film buff, but I've been... So enjoying learning about all of this history and just reading about this time in American history. Christine, for you, when you first got this role, how familiar were you with the Gilded Age and what fascinated you? I've always
3: been fascinated by it. I have always loved the novels of Edith Wharton and and Henry James. So it's a period that I love. I love the mores and the manners and having been trained at Juilliard and been in plays where we wear wigs and corsets and learn fan language and various kinds of dancing. That that's sort of what I would call acting dressage where the actors have to mm-hmm. be very precise and utterly specific and there is an exact way perhaps of saying or doing or behaving. I find that wonderful as an actress to inhabit that world. And certainly Agnes is nothing if not utterly exacting in her, in her thoughts and in her behavior, things have to be done a certain way. So I absolutely loved embracing her character and I had never done anything in period on film. I've done lots of plays, restoration and Shakespeare and and Moliere, and and I, and I love doing period work. And I particularly love language and what one can do as an actor, just the way you say a certain sentence, the way your character would just make her point in a certain way, and just exactly where to pause and all. And there it was, there was Julian Fellows. And I always, for years, when I first heard that Julian was considering doing some American version of a Downton Abbey, I thought, oh, dear God, please, please let me be on some list. And then it happened that we were always uh, nominated. I remember sitting across from the Downton Abbey cast, and I was happily always in the same category as Dame Maggie for Supporting Actress, and of course she always won. <laughs> I, you know, you don't even have to think of a speech because... it's oh. Uh, you know, but at the HBO party, I don't think Julian remembers, but I approached him and we had a lovely conversation. This was ages ago. And I talked about having a family connection because my my late husband, his grandmother was a Drexel and his aunt was a prominent society lady, Elizabeth Drexel Lair. And so Julian, of course, knew all about this woman and the family. Anyway, that was years ago. And then I was doing some recycling in my garage when I got a call from my manager who said, you're being offered this Oh, I remember exactly where I was standing. so it's quite literally a dream come true. Any actress would want to be in this, but particularly Agnes, who I I've now called the walking declarative sentence. She just thinks <laughs> she's right. She's simply right. Yeah. and you're all yeah. wrong and I dread the future.
1: <laughs> we, we actually have Mr. and Mrs. Drexel announced that a ball during the series. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Of course, Agnes van Rijn
2: is a fictional character, as are most, but not all of the others on the show. Julian, how did you decide which real-life personalities to incorporate into the story? Was Agnes, for example, based on a real person?
1: Well, I think they're all based on sort of bits. They're amalgamated bits of Mm -hmm. real people and real incidents. I mean, on the whole, I feel anyway... If you deal with real people in a show or in a movie, you must strive to tell what really happened to them, what the truth was about them. And that, of course, can be very limiting. I mean, it's fine if you're doing three years in the life of Queen Victoria, which I did for one movie, because it's quite a neat little Part of her life. But if you've got an ongoing series, you are quite stuck if you've chosen real people and they are going through a five year period when absolutely nothing happened to them. (laughs) But if you have fictional people, then you can take incidents out of those real lives and use them in the fiction. But you're not pretending that that's what happened to the originals. The only time, I mean, I like to sort of glimpse real people, just as a reminder, as a kind of anchor, in a way, to put it in the series. But one of the only ones I felt we couldn't be without was Mrs. Astor, because that whole society really hinged on her. I mean, I don't say anything about her that is defamatory, which I've been quite careful about, because... You know, in England, you can say anything about someone who's dead. It doesn't matter what you say. The law cannot touch you. But that is not true in America. So that puts you slightly on the back foot. Not that I know anything particularly unpleasant to say about her. But you have to be a little bit careful. But, I mean, I was even more careful than that in that she does have a narrative. But it is based entirely on the truth, on something that really happened in her life.
2: Yeah, and speaking of amalgams, in this first episode, when I was seeing George Russell for the first time, I was thinking, oh, right, so he's sort of a Vanderbilt, but no, he's actually a Jay Gould. He's got dashes of all of these different historical characters sort of melded together.
1: Yes, I mean, I was very interested by Jay Gould, who was fantastically ruthless in business to an extent that... Mrs. Astor would never let him in. He was never allowed into society, and she didn't let his children in until he was dead. I mean, that's how much she felt. But he was an incredibly affectionate father and a very caring and faithful husband, and the marriage was very happy. And his children all had these rather nostalgic memories of Lindhurst, their house on the Hudson and uh, you know, and him running around taking the pony's reins while his daughter jigged around on the back. And that isn't the image of Jay Dool that has been passed down. You know, we see him as a man more or less with a knife between his teeth. But it seemed to me a very interesting double that, that someone can be caring and affectionate on a personal level. But once they are in business, then that's it. And, you know, you see people like that in our business, who are perfectly pleasant to meet socially, but would slit your wrists, you know, and your throat, if they thought it would get them one better line in Act Three. It's just a double personality. And that always rather interested me. And that's sort of what George is based on, really.
2: Yeah. Christine, you had mentioned before that your training in New York at Juilliard had taught you about the Gilded Age and learning some of the etiquettes at dancing and such. How did that come into play here as well? Or did you have extra on-set coaching for 19th-century etiquettes? Oh, indeed. We had a lot of coaching. And then because we
3: were preparing to do it, so I was already reading, you know, rereading Edith Wharton and reading about the Gilded Age and going to the New York Society Library and reading a long book yawn about the Livingston family, but we were supposed to start much earlier and then we were shut down, which lengthened the amount of time to prepare almost too much. So, you know, oh my gosh, you're just chomping at the bit to start work. So there was lots of time to read. And of course, We did have sessions to get a uniformity of speech. You know, you don't want to sound like an English person, but that strata of society did have a way of speaking. And we worked very hard on that, very meticulously. And we had classes and lectures on, of course, everything, table etiquette and how to move. And there's a scene in a carriage where you can't even look at another person. To look at the person in the other carriage meant you were acknowledging his or her presence. And you can't do that. You can't Mm. even look. It's so utterly strict to form. And then, of course, Julian was on the set. So if you had your teaspoon on the tablecloth, he was on you like a you cannot have a teaspoon on the tablecloth. You have it in your saucer and you have to have the teaspoon even if you don't use it, the teaspoon. So yes, I loved it. I loved, I loved all of it because it was a really marvelous education into the period when you play a character and you enter that world. And I love history and I love American history. And as I said, I love 19th century history, be it English or American. So yeah, I can't wait to continue because it just keeps unveiling itself.
0: And as we heard in the clip, you know, Agnes is from old New York stock and she's very particular about not consorting with the Russells who are new money. So what kinds of conversations, Christine, did you have with Julian when it came to the social hierarchy? How did you understand Agnes's mindset?
3: Well, as I said, I think a key is written in the script when she does have that speech about you're a Livingston of Livingston Manor. You know, there wasn't a real American aristocracy, as Julian said, but the landed gentry, those that got there first, the white people that got there first, particularly the Livingstons, they had baronial mansions along the Hudson River and their value system was very much based on an English system. And what Agnes is seeing in the transition is people who are arriving and assume they can buy their way into this authentic life. It becomes a society that's being defined by how much money you can show off in order to gain authenticity. And that horrifies her. So those were lots of wonderful discussions. And you know, I kept thinking, oh, it's like a Trump hotel or a Trump mansion is going up across the street. And that sent me into enough shudders to, <laughs> comparable to, oh my gosh, what is happening? You can imagine how her life changed when these people began hauling in all of this masonry and, and statues and paintings Gilding. and built this palace. Yes, literally gilding. So, Julian, do you have anything else? I mean, it it just, that part of the discussion is so key for Agnes and Ada that their lives are being, their way of life, their whole sense of life is being challenged.
1: Their whole value system is being undermined and being replaced. I mean, I think what's important is that we're catching America at the cusp of when old European-based America is coming to an end and is being replaced by this new, very dynamic country with this fantastic, I mean, the manufacturing, the different things going on. They were going to be the richest country in the world. The next century was going to be the American century. You know, it was all this moment sort of beginning to happen. And I think that for the old school, there was much in that that was frightening because change is also destructive. It isn't only positive. And I think Agnes particularly, but all of them really, those rules, those manners, those society structures are a kind of weaponry that you use to keep people in their place. And they're they're (laughs) like a lot of daggers that you can kind of whip out. That is how Agnes, I mean, yes, Bertha Russell has 50 a 100, 1,000 times the amount of money that Agnes has. But it doesn't mean she can pull, she can pull rank on Agnes because she just can't. Mm-hmm. And we see that played out, how Bertha knows that getting Agnes to come into her house is a big deal. It's a big thing. It's rather interesting to watch. I mean, of course, in the end, the Van Rines living in Washington Square or whatever weren't going to dominate the coming century. And if you say to the average American, have you heard of the Schemmerhorns? Have you heard of the Vanderbilts? They'll pick the Vanderbilts. It was the new families arriving with the money that ultimately were the survivors. But nevertheless, we're playing out that cultural war, really. And, you know, we're in a culture war now. So I think it's quite interesting. Well, I hope
2: it is. Well, no, it's extremely interesting. And it's a lot, right? I mean, you're talking about introducing an entire historical era and social dynamics and hierarchies and such. And at the same time, in a television series, you're introducing characters and plot lines all in one episode. So how do you bring all of that together in this first episode without overwhelming... The audience.
1: Well, of course, it's for you to say whether we have overwhelmed the audience. <laughs> I,
2: I was not overwhelmed. I was not overwhelmed.
1: <laughs> First episodes are always a, a mountain to climb a bit because you are saying to the audience, this is a new world, this is how it works, these are the rules, and these are the characters. And by the way, these things are happening to the characters right now, so you better follow them or you'll miss the story of this episode. And all of that is thrown at them in the first 10 minutes. I I mean, I rely on a sort of goodwill of the audience, taking a look at something new and trying to see if they're going to enjoy it. And I think, I hope, they keep a a certain open-mindedness. But as I say, it's not for me or Christine to answer whether we achieved that, you know, that's for the rest of you who've seen the show.
0: Yeah, well, I also love the look of the show too. It's so sumptuous and opulent and the sets are beautiful. Christine, for you, what was it like when you got to walk on the Van Ryn house set for the first time?
3: Oh, gosh, you know, I came the day day before we started filming. I, I went to the costume department and said, look, put me in the corset, give me the skirt. And I'm just going to walk alone in my house and I'm going to sit on the sofa and I'm going to sit by the desk and I'm going to figure out how can I make myself feel like this is how I live every day? Because it's really shocking. It's so different from our contemporary, the way our bodies move. And now we're, we're always wearing workout wear and shoes. This is an entirely different thing. But these women changed several times a day into outfits with vast swaths of fabric and beading and corsetrinal. As I said, I welcomed it, but it did take time. And I will say this, we did reshoot several times, the beginning, Agnes's first scenes with Ado. We shot it once, which was my first day of shooting. We did what was, in fact, one of my first scenes. And then I said to the director, I, I feel I can do better, just this certain part of the scene. And then because when they put it all together, they realized, or Julian and everybody realized, we had to consolidate the plot more. I wound up months and months later with uh, Cynthia consolidating the first few scenes. So I had another shot at it, as did Cynthia, and I think it's much improved. But the whole thing with, with your costume and all, it took You know, I said to the director, well, now that we're done
1: shooting all 10, I'm ready to start again. And now I know (laughs) how to do it. I thought the end product was terrific, actually. And I thought it was completely sold. One of the things that I found, well, i I say helpful, I wasn't acting, but I love the fact that they built the Russell House and the Brook House, the whole ground floor, as we say, or first floor, you would call it, all in its own logic. So you weren't leaving this soundstage to go to the drawing room or to go to the dining room. That was the logic of the house. You know, when you see Agnes and Ada having dinner, then getting up and walking out of the dining room and going through the hall and then into the drawing room, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing in real life. And that helped it for me. And I felt with the Russell House, too, when we came onto that set, the scale of the whole thing suddenly... (laughs) Became sort of real. I mean, I thought they were brilliant, actually.
3: Extraordinary. It's just amazing.
2: Julian, at the top of this interview, you mentioned filming during the pandemic. I imagine that there were challenges along the way, but luckily it also opened up possibilities because so many fabulous actors were not working on Broadway due to it being shut down at the time. We had heard director and executive producer Michael Engler
1: was instrumental in this effort? He was determined, you know, when it was clear that for all of them, the tap had just been turned off. I mean, all of these theaters were dark for months and months and months. I mean, I will say that Gareth and David and I, we saw that this was a wonderful opportunity for us too. I don't want to sound too selfless because suddenly all these people were prepared to come into our show, often in supporting roles they probably wouldn't have considered in normal times.
3: Also, the marvelous thing, although we didn't, indeed, we didn't get to hang out together, it was just a revolving door on theater actors, people with whom I've either done plays, I've seen them. There was a camaraderie simply because it's a community of actors who just bump into each other all the time. And I would play sometimes very serious scenes With an actor with whom I'd done a play years ago and and it was like old home week. So in that regard, that was very, very helpful because we although we we didn't get to socialize a lot. I mean, Cynthia Nixon played my daughter in 1984 in Tom Stoppard's (laughs) The Real Thing. She was in Barnard College and she was this young, sprightly, and still is, young woman. And she and I bonded then. So here we are playing sisters.
2: Yeah. You've also been acting, of course, with Audra McDonald in the good Fight. Well, Audra and I, our paths have not crossed yet as characters. I, I
3: certainly hope they do. So we were not on set together, but, oh, my goodness, just one after actor after another with whom I've had. Of course, if you're around long enough,
1: you tend to know a lot of people. So. <laughs> there is an element of whether you're still standing. Uh, and, and in the end, that's one of the rewards of a long-term career, is that by the end, (laughs) even the critics forget that they disliked you originally because you're still there.
0: (laughs) You just have to hang on. Well, speaking of Cynthia Nixon, you know, she plays Ada Brooke, who Agnes lives with. That's her sister. But they had a falling out with their brother Henry, who squandered the family's money. Marion is Henry's daughter. And so in this clip, we'll hear Agnes and Ada discussing Marion coming to live with them. Take a listen.
3: She means to join us here just as soon as she has closed the house and sold her furniture. What a relief. A relief? And who is to support her? Exactly. Me. With the Van Ryn money, which was not achieved at no cost to myself. You were allowed the pure and tranquil life of a spinster. I was not. I'm very grateful. So you should be.
0: Well, I'm glad she's coming. And if my letter played a part in her decision, then I'm glad I sent it.
3: I doubt it was your letter. More likely, she has discovered her father left her without a penny to her name. Henry couldn't provide for a dog in a ditch. He never kept a dollar in his pocket if there were women or drink within 500 miles. Magnus, our brother has died. Our brother, with whom we have had no connection these many years. We
0: should have gone for the funeral anyway.
3: It wasn't worth an uncomfortable day of travel to make sure Henry was dead.
0: So no love lost between Agnes and Henry. But Christine, you do really feel a love between Agnes and Ada. And you mentioned having worked with Cynthia before. What was it like creating that sisterly chemistry with her?
3: Easy. You know, when you're working with marvellous actors, I can only say acting is challenging, but it's easy. She's so lively. She's Got a great sense of humor. And of course, that relationship is innately funny. You know, the big sister and the little sister and the repartee between them. They're they're like the old married couple. And it's delicious. And I I welcome any chance to bring humor into all those scenes, you know. But yes, easy because Cynthia, she and I have a history, but she's absolutely marvelous and perfect for the role. And uh, I just look forward to more. (laughs)
1: We better not get ahead of ourselves. That's true. That's
3: true. I was just looking at that clip thinking that was indeed exposition that I was spouting, except that even when I was talking about Henry, it brings up such anger in me that anger is fresh. And so it really isn't expositional. She cannot get over the fact that this brother so squandered their fortune that then Agnes did have to marry a man she really did not love and move away from the family homestead and their lives were irrevocably altered and they had no relationship with this young woman who's coming to live with them.
1: I mean, what I always try to do in those situations, in a drama, is to give everyone a reasonable point of view that you understand. I get rather irritated in films or television where the writer or the director is telling me who I have to like uh, and <laughs> whose side I am I always want to say, I'll be the judge of that, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, with these ones, what I hope is when Agnes or Ada are disagreeing over something, we see both sides. Mm. Uh, and I don't think Agnes is unreasonable at all. I mean, she was left trying to get the show back on the road, having been completely betrayed by her brother. And also, I suspect initially financially, but ultimately completely, she takes responsibility for her younger sister. And so she's had to do all this. And she's done it by marrying a man who Christine, rather euphemistically, says she does not love. In my view, she can hardly stand to be in the same room. But she Mm. does it because that was the only way forward. And that, again, is one of the reasons why I always think strong women in period drama are interesting characters, because of course there were strong women. We're always being told, you know, they didn't have the vote and they couldn't own land and this and this and this and this, all of which is true, but it doesn't mean they weren't born strong. Mm-hmm. And when you're born strong into an unjust society with very limited choices, you have to fight. You have to do what you can do to make your life happen and to make it work. And that's what Agnes has done. And then on that level, I'm on Agnes's side. Indeed.
3: And there wouldn't have been a Gilded Age without the women because the men were busy making money and then they'd go to their clubs. It's the women who created that society. And you see Bertha orchestrating every bit. Her husband was busy in his office dealing with the railway. She was making all the aesthetic choices and the parties and the balls. It was the women who did all of that and made it
1: important and showed off their husband's wealth by displaying it. The women always run society. I mean, I always love that bit in Vanity Fair where Becky Sharp says to Lord Stane, you know, will you get me into society? And she thinks of him as immensely rich, immensely powerful nobleman. And he says, I can't help with that. For that, you need help from <laughs> Lady Stane. And that <laughs> was how those worlds worked. Of course, not, you know, a very small proportion of that, The world was in society and so on and so forth. And it was all, you know, very unfair, et cetera. But within society, the women were in charge. There's no doubt about that. They worked together. I mean, those couples, when they were successful, like Harry Kay, Vanderbilt, and, and Alva, they fought together, you know. I mean, eventually they came apart, but not before Alva had constructed a whole position in society that her husband took advantage of. Uh, You know, it was for both of them.
2: And I'd love to go back even to the bigger picture of how you're telling history. You're sneaking a history lesson into the series at the same time. And I've recently started listening to Belgravia, your 2016 novel that became a TV series last year. And I slowly realised that I was also being introduced into the history of the city of London in the 19th century and how it developed with Qubit, the developer, etc., And I thought, oh, well, that's fascinating. He's doing that there. And you're doing this, again, in the Gilded Age. I mean, you're telling the story of New York developing. How do you find that balance of teaching about history and also telling these stories, keeping it fun for the audience?
1: Well, of course, now you're terrifying me that I'm ramming history <laughs> down the throat. <screen. laughs> no, 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 no. I am an enthusiast of history.
2: So, of course, my ears perk up.
1: History is the story of why we are what we are, why we are how we are, all of this stuff. And I think some people think they will be bored by history because they have only been taught history in a very boring way. Mm -hmm. The fact is, history is the ultimate soap opera. It's the most gripping story of all. Mm -hmm. And I think I try to use it in a way of saying to the audience, by the way, This really happened, or something very similar to it. And these people really happened, or people who were very like them. And all of this that they're doing, saying, crying over, this is all stuff that was happening at this time.
0: Yeah, and I love to experience the worlds that you've created, you know, in Gosford Park. I'm a huge Robert Altman fan, so I love that movie. Downton Abbey, now the Gilded Age. So, Julian, what still fascinates you about the relationships of upstairs-downstairs and old money and new money all these years later?
1: Well, I think the upstairs-downstairs thing is that you can't really do a period drama without the servant group of characters I mean, the interesting thing is that for contemporary writers, for Edith Wharton or Henry James, both of whom I'm also a big fan of, you very seldom see a servant as a character in those novels. Occasionally, you'll glimpse a footman at dinner or a lady's maid when someone's getting changed for the evening. But they don't usually function as characters because to those people, they were so ordinary. It was like me doing an enormous scene about someone washing their hands. You just think, no, we know that, uh, and for us, it's different. We don't see those servants as non-people who were just gliding in and out of rooms, carrying trays and mending dresses and cleaning shoes. We see them as people, and we have a different take on them, that every one of those tweenies and maids and chauffeurs and po- they were all leading a life, and they were all leading a life of which they were the central character. And that, for me, has put a different dimension into the period drama of post-war Western world. And if I've been part of that, waking people up to it, then I'm very happy about that. Because now, you know, the National Trust and these different organizations all over the world showing off these palaces, they show you the kitchens, they show you the servants' hall, they show you all these, the luggage <coughs> rooms and the this and that because that's what people come to see, they want to see it. Until really pretty recently, all those rooms were used for offices. They didn't think the public wanted to look at them. All they were shown was the ballroom and the library and the drawing room and this, that and the other, but you didn't get any of the mechanics. And I hope that I've been part of that change. I certainly hope so.
0: I think you have. And there's a whole world down there and we can't wait to see more of the Gilded Age. So Christine Baranski and Julian Fellows, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank thank you you
2: for inviting us. Wow, that was so much fun. Yes. Who knew that Christine Baranski is actually descended in real life from Gilded Age society? from Elizabeth Lair.
0: I know, and my favorite part was when she called Agnes a walking declarative statement. <laughs> That's just the perfect way to describe that character. And Tom, yeah. I don't know, we started out strong with this episode. I don't know how we're going to top this, but we will because it's only the beginning. So join us next week for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast where we will have even more special guests from the series.
2: Yes, and we'll be talking about the history of Behind some of the real New York City locations that we see in the show.
0: Can't wait. Okay, that's it for us. But be sure to watch new episodes of The Gilded Age Mondays on HBO and HBO Max before tuning into the next podcast. And we'll talk to you then. Bye. See you soon.